Good morning. I'm really honored and glad that you guys are here. I was hung on my cord, my little microphone cord. It took me a second to get out of here because it was all tangled and I didn't know what to do and I was having a little bit of a panic attack, but it's okay because I brought my coffee and we're totally gonna recover. Um, I have to go ahead and tell you, my mask is here, I've got all the things. Um, so I have to tell you, I feel um, courtesy of, um, just being real honest, Alabama public education that I learned way more about American history from watching Hamilton on Disney Plus than I ever did in school growing up. Um, so I literally feel like I've gotten a crash course in American history over the last couple of weeks as this phenomenal musical has been available to us. And I'm sitting here looking at this and how it compares to church history, which I knew a whole lot more going into this weekend. And you're thankful that the pastor of the church knew more about church history going into this because that's just a big vote of confidence. And that's great. Seven ecumenical councils. Um, are, are complete in the life of the church. And, and we owe a lot to each and every one of those. And today we're going to dive into Acts chapter 15, continuing through this journey with the Apostle Paul and what it looks like for us to be a people of God reaching out, growing up, giving all in our day and generation, understanding who Jesus has called us to be. Of those seven ecumenical councils, this is the first and maybe the most important and I love this guy named Reggie Joyner. He's the, the founder of a ministry where we get all of our kids' ministry curriculum. And he said a quote a long time ago that I've kind of hung on to for years and years, saying that all Scripture is equally inspired, but not all Scripture is equally important. And, and I would dare say that what we read in Acts chapter 15 is one of, if not the most important passage of Scripture that we read in all of church history that we've like gleaned from in these past couple thousand years has come out of a declaration that was made in this passage and so thankful that it was kept intact in this passage because everything else that we've encountered throughout life has always been a temptation to move beyond this grace-filled declaration. So if you have your Bibles with you, verses will appear on the screen. If you don't, that's okay. But if you do and you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 15, we're literally going to go through the entire thing this morning. It's a lot of reading. That's why I brought some caffeine, but we're going to start right in verse one. And it says, certain people, and I don't get very far in the passage beyond that, because don't you know that there's always certain people? You know certain people. Yeah, you, do. you know who they are. I've always been like tempted as a pastor when people come to me and says, you know, Pastor Nick, I've been, a lot of people are saying, oh, who's a lot of people? Because generally a lot of people is one anecdotal person that happens to believe the same thing that you believe in that moment and that completes the narrative that you have. But there's, there's a certain people in scripture too. And it says that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Now in Antioch, who were the believers, Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. Not, not people who are part of that Jewish family. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, we're not gonna camp out there very long, you know what it is, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And we immediately start to understand, okay, this is why everything is about to get important. This is why our theological radar ought to go off and alarm bells ought to start shouting in our heads because this certain people saying that you have to be circumcised in order to achieve salvation, certain people got really upset about that Reggie Joyner quote too. What? He said that all scripture is equally inspired, but not all scripture is equally important. Who is he to say that all scripture is not equally important? Well, Jesus himself said 
all scripture is not equally important because a rich young ruler came to him at one point and said, hey, tell me you know, what I must do to enter into heaven. Tell me, boil them all down. Tell me what's the most important of all the commands. And out of the 600 plus rules that were given to them in the Old Testament, Jesus identified one as the most important. And as a bonus, he gave him the second. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus himself said, some words are more important than other words. And here's a group of people that came down from Judea all the way to Antioch to come back and say, hey, listen, these words that I'm about to tell you, circumcision, are really, really important words. And so the disciples got concerned about what was happening. If you go to verse 2, it says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Ephesians chapter 2 says, it's, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, it's the gift of God, it's not of yourselves, not by works, so that no one can boast. So in this chapter, we have this contrasting comparison over the gift of grace that God gives us in Jesus and the effort, physical effort, that we can put forth as mankind to be obedient and to submit to an Old Testament covenant law. And we say right at the beginning that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We don't have to add anything to the sacrifice of Jesus. We don't have to add any rules or regulations to the sacrifice of Jesus because the sacrifice of Jesus was enough. This conflict that happened right here in Acts 15 was the basis for Paul writing the book of Galatians to a group of people that were now tempted to go one way or the other. And this is a theological argument. We can look at history. We can look at tradition for supporting resources to help us make our case. But what we stand here on today is to say, like, unapologetically that the words inside this book and the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to understand the words inside this book is paramount for us. And as a church, we're going to agree on the words in this book, even the conflicting parts of it right here in Acts chapter 15. All of Christian history, all of religious history, all of popular culture is a temptation to get us to move past the declaration that the apostles made in this chapter that it is by grace alone that we have been saved. And everything that we fight in life, every single temptation that we face is an effort to somehow move us away from that where we understand that our salvation is the free gift of God attained for us only by the blood of Jesus and not by the work or the effort or the good things that we might do in order to earn God's favor. The reformers in the Protestant Reformation, they gave us five statements that are really important because everything they did was in Latin or Greek or like really old language. They gave us what's called the five solas, sola scriptura. Well, you know what that means, solo scripture. Only through scripture do we encounter the good news of Jesus Christ. Sola fide, fide faith. Only through faith. It's by faith alone that we are saved. Sola gratia, sola grace, only grace. Only grace saves us. Sola Christus, only Christ. Only Christ is the way to know and to follow God. And then sola de gloria, everything that we do is all for the glory of God. What these guys were about to find out is that adding to the gospel story Adding to the truth of salvation in any way, adding to it in any way always subtracts 
from the truth. Y'all are distracted by the whiteboard this morning because you're like, oh, what's he going to do? Is he going to draw a picture? Are we going to play hangman a little bit later and try to fill in some blanks? We're going to be doing some mathematical equations this morning, which is really, really risky for a pastor, by the way. Like, I went to seminary, not NASA. So, like, I don't understand most of what I'm going to do this morning, but I've practiced a few times. But don't get distracted. It's going to come later. So just ignore the whiteboard for now. But anytime, anytime we try to add to the gospel, what we're really doing is subtracting from our faith. And that's what certain people were doing here, adding to the gospel, adding to the method by which these Gentiles could come to faith in Christ. And anytime you add to it, what you're ultimately doing is subtracting from it. In Galatians chapter one, we read these words. Paul says, I'm astonished. He wrote this entire letter to them in response to what was happening in Jerusalem with this temptation. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Like it's not even the same gospel. If you're adding to it, that makes it a whole different thing altogether, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people, certain people, are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The reason this is so important is because doctrinal unity matters. Like there are some essential beliefs that we have to agree on. There are some things that we have to come to understand and recognize as truth no matter what and truth that we would not deviate from. This doctrine, that set of beliefs that we have is essential for us to land on the page that it's Christ and Christ alone, that it's grace and grace alone, that it's faith and faith alone, that it's scripture and scripture alone. We have to agree on those things, some people, because we're a diverse group of believers. And some of you would have a Catholic background and you grew up reciting, memorizing this catechism. Those are doctrinal beliefs. Those are foundational beliefs. And through the Reformation, somehow or another, we wanted to move so far away from the doctrinal beliefs that went wrong that we threw out the other doctrinal beliefs that were really, really good. You've heard the expression, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. In order to maintain a doctrinal unity, we should have been doing some catechism along the way, some statements about our beliefs so that we could know what is true and why it's true and why on earth we would believe it and ultimately not only why we would believe it, but what it would do inside of us. Because make no mistake, the things that we believe, they do something inside of us and then they make their way out of us through our words, through our actions, through our thoughts, through our feelings, through our relationships, through our behaviors. The the things that we believe work in us and ultimately the things that we believe work their way out of us into every single part of our life. This doctrinal unity matters. And one thing that we gather from this passage of scripture is that doctrinal unity always protects gospel centrality. What matters the most in scripture What is the most important? Where are the words that we find that matter the most? I'll pick up with verse three, and it says this. So the church, you know, we've got this crazy conflict going on, and Paul and Barnabas are appointed, along with some other leaders, to to head to Jerusalem to, to handle this council with the apostles. And it says in verse three, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. They told the story of how Gentile believers had come to faith in Christ. And this news made all the believers, Jewish believers, Gentile believers, whoever believers, this made everybody really glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. So now they've entered into the Jewish company. They've entered into like 
old Jewish life. And they've walked in and they've been welcomed to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. It was a testimony. Hey guys, we've been out on the field. We've been doing missionary work. We've been in all these cities. We've been telling the good news about Jesus, crucified, resurrected, gone to live in heaven, prepare a place for us so we can go and be there one day with them. Also like this whole gospel good story, we've been telling that to people. And guess what? These Gentiles who did not have a faith in our Old Testament God and who didn't know all the great stories like Noah and Moses and David and like all these people, like those people that didn't know that, now they know about Jesus. And guess what? They repented of their sin. They turned from their wicked ways. They decided that they were going to put their faith in Christ and Christ alone, and they became one of us, and the church began to celebrate until certain people, you know certain people, because it says in verse 5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, you'll remember those from the Gospels, Jesus interacted with these people a lot, if some who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. You know, that long law of Moses. Everything in like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, like all those rules and regulations, they must be circumcised, we know what that is, right? And they must be required to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and the elders, they met to consider this question. They're diving into the understanding, okay, how Jewish are we going to make these people be? What kind of hoops are they going to have to jump through? What kind of hurdles are they going to have to go over in order to be one of us? Is sola fide enough? Is faith in Jesus enough? Is sola gratia enough? Is the grace of God enough? Or do they need to take some other steps in order to be with us? So the apostles and the elders, they met to consider that question. And after much discussion, Peter, you know Peter, he got up and he addressed them. This is what he said. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips. This is in Acts chapter 10. Like he said from his own lips to a guy named Cornelius, the message of the gospel and that they would believe. And they did believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by what? Circumcision. Doesn't it say that in your Bible? Oh, it says he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that BTW, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe that it is through sola gratia, through the grace of our Lord Jesus. You can write alone in your Bible right there if you need to, through the grace of our Lord Jesus alone that we are saved, just as they are. Keyword here, law of Moses. Keyword here, ancestors. They're using all of their history to disparage the gospel. And what we know from scripture is that even these Old Testament parts of it, once you have the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, and once you're filled up with the Holy Spirit, all of those Old Testament parts begin to point to Jesus in ways that you never, ever imagined. That's why Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 5, the famous Sermon on the Mount, longest discourse that's recorded, that's why he said, oh yeah, by the way, I didn't come to abolish all that Old Testament law. I came to fulfill it. When Paul's writing to the Galatian church, he says, okay, by the way, the law, that was just our guardian until Christ came to fulfill everything. 
everything. Basically, it was a babysitter. And the babysitter is not the parent. The parent is the parent. The babysitter is just who takes care of you while the parent is away. Like we've used babysitters for years. And I think my lucky stars in the Lord above that my girls are 13 and 12, almost 14 now, where they can actually do all the babysitting at home because that has saved us a boo-coo of money. I'm so tired of Venmoing teenagers to take care of my children when they were little. And I promise you, if you've got littles at home and you're having to pay babysitters and you're watching those dollars go out, like every time you go to the movies, it costs you $100, not because the movie is expensive, because you have to pay somebody 50 bucks to sit at home and watch your children while you go to the movies. But I know it's COVID and nobody's dating right now. So you're really saving a lot of babysitting dollars. If I had every, had a dime for every dollar that we spent in babysitters throughout the years, man, I would get to take a vacation. But then of course there's COVID, so you can't really take a vacation. So I digress. Like the babysitter factor. And when the babysitter leaves, it's because the parent got home. You know, kids have separation anxiety when moms and dads leave a lot. So Daniel Tiger comes in and helps us out like, grown-ups come back. Yeah, they're going to come back. Jesus Christ comes back. And so you got this, this law, this guardian, this, this babysitter that's taking care of business for people, helping them see who God is and how much he loves them. But eventually, mom and dad are going to come home. Going to get to see him face to face. Not just a law sitting here, mind you. That's okay. Hey, 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 sit tight. Listen, follow these rules. Hang out. Be together. Understand God better because Jesus is, he's going to come. It's okay. Mom and dad, are, don't cry. It's all right. Mom and dad are going to be back. So we get this picture of, of what the Old Testament law was for us. And here's some people that are basically saying the babysitter was better. Let me tell you, no matter how good your babysitter is, the kids don't feel that way. Babysitter's not better. No, it, it, it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus alone that we're saved. And then Peter says, just as they are. In verse 12, it says, so the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. You have three specific acts that are going on in the Jerusalem council. Act one is, is, is Peter. He's like, act one, he's going to say some words. Act two is Barnabas and Paul, they're going to say some words. We don't get to know exactly what those words are, but basically everybody's amazed by them. And then you get act three, because when they had finished in verse 13, James, the brother of Jesus, who was not a Christ follower when he was on earth, but became one later, James spoke up and says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described, that's Peter, Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may see the rest of mankind. All the other people who aren't Jewish like us may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who, what? Bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. And James says, it is my judgment then that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James knew his audience. He knew that they weren't just going to be satisfied with the works and the experiences and the words of Peter. He knew that this group of people was not only going to be satisfied with the testimony and the stories that Barnabas and Paul told. He knew that this group of people, he knew his audience, that they were only going to be convinced 
in grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture, they were only going to be convinced in the gospel story if he was somehow able to weave the prophets back into the equation. The lawyers among us are like, okay, he's just stating precedent. He's using a case from long ago to come back and help us understand this relevance today. And he says in conclusion, based on those words from the Old Testament, he's speaking their language. Hey guys, it's of my opinion based on these words, that we not make it difficult for these people to know and to follow God. The challenge for those Pharisees was that, but we've always known God this way. And if you know God, you got to know God this way like us. How many of you remember a, a, a symbol like this? Equal, right? Oh, but then they threw you for a loop in like the ninth grade because then they started making like a squiggly line and the top of it. What is that? Equal and congruent. And I used to think that those words were like completely synonymous one another and that if something was equal, it would also be congruent. And if something was congruent, it would also be equal. But then you get these two shapes. And they're completely not congruent because for something to be congruent, the shapes have to be exact. In fact, you need to be able to take this one and flip it and put it on top of this one and not even see that it's there anymore because for something to be congruent, it has to be in the exact same shape. But what if I told you that length times width equals the area of an object? You know that, right? Because you took geometry and you're thinking, why in the world is our pastor talking this way? Well, what if the length and the width here multiplied to be like, I don't know, um, like if this was 20 um, and this was 20, you would equal 400, right? What if, if I told you that this was 10 and this was 40? Does that also equal 400? So the area of these objects is equal even though the shapes themselves are not congruent. The gospel can be equal even when it isn't congruent. So you got this group of people that long before they ever heard the name Jesus, they had memorized over 600 commands that somehow pointed them to a savior they didn't even know was coming. And then you got a group of people that all they heard was, I'm a sinner and the direction that I'm going is really, really wrong and I need forgiveness, but there's a God who created a way for me to know him anyway. They bypassed all of the former and still arrived at Christ. Don't discount the Jews. They went through all of the former and wrestled with it every single turn and still arrived at Christ. There are people today, certain people today, that think that if you're going to love Jesus, you've got to love Jesus this way. If you're going to read scripture, you better read this translation. If you're going to come to church, you better wear those clothes. If you're going to praise God, you better sing those songs. If you're going to love God with everything that you got, you better use those instruments. If you're going to give God everything that you've got, you better follow these rules and these customs and these strategies and those customs and those rules and those strategies have been so good because for generations they have pointed people right to 
Jesus, but you don't have to have the customs and the rules and the strategies to point people to Jesus. And we're never going to bow down to the certain people who say, if you're going to know and follow Christ, you got to know and follow Christ this way. Because two things can be equal in their content and not be congruent in their context. One can be the same without the other. At this point, we have to define grace in, in, in really certain terms to understand what it is. And it, it's, this whole passage is truly all about grace. It, it's all about the goodness of God, this unmerited favor that we didn't earn, that we don't deserve, that we didn't get because we were somehow able to walk through some motions or follow some rules. Why grace? Because we needed it. Why grace? And why did we need it? Because of our our, our sin and our sickness and our disease. And sometimes it's hard for us, those of us who have not gone through much of the sin and the sickness and the disease in life, because we can somehow come on the other side of it and think, well, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. It probably only took a few drops of Jesus's blood to sanctify me. But that guy over there, it took pints. Are we ever convinced of that? Looking at our own lives and thinking, well, you know, Jesus hung on the cross and died for my sin, and it probably hurt a little. But my, oh my, when he died for you, it probably hurt a lot. That's because we somehow base our salvation on works. That I somehow met Jesus halfway with my behavior and my words and my actions and my attitudes and my history. I, I somehow met you halfway, Jesus. When we really understand grace, when we really, really understand that kind of love, we'll, we'll ultimately be dispensers of it. We are not truly grateful for the grace of our Lord. We are not truly grateful for the goodness of Jesus unless we are willing to extend that kind of grace to other people. You know you're really grateful for God's love and you understand it when you share it. You know you're really grateful for God's grace and you understand it when you freely give it to others. Typically, we like to demand it from people without giving it back to people. It's a double standard to, to somehow think and act and believe that, well, I really think that you owe me the benefit of the doubt, but I'm going to be really cautious about giving it back to you in the same way. It means we don't understand grace. To continue, and it says, Then the apostles and the elders, in verse 22, the whole church decided to choose some of their own men, and they sent them back to Antioch, where all this corruption and all this difficulty started in the first place. Along with Paul and Barnabas, they chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. We'll encounter him throughout the rest of this Acts story. Men who were leaders among the believers, and with them they sent the following letter. And I love these words. The apostles and elders, to your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some, certain people, went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds. Some of your Bible translations say unsettling your souls. Guys, we have an unsettled soul these days. Troubling your minds with what they said. So we all agreed and chose some men and sent them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything 
beyond the following requirements. And you're thinking, okay, they told us we didn't have good circumstances, but why all these other requirements? You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And you're sitting there, why, why add those rules? Why, out of all the 613, why bypass circumcision? Why go directly to those? And if you do careful study, what you realize is that every single one of those practices was attached to idol worship. Thank heavens, because, you know, I do like to order my steak medium rare. Okay, it's not talking about the temperature of your meat. It's literally talking about idol worship. Every single one of those practices was attached to idol worship. And so we sit here and we say, okay, doctrinal unity is going to preserve the centrality of the gospel, but it's also going to preserve for us the authority of the gospel because it's Christ and Christ alone. You cannot fully commit yourself to Christ and still be worshiping these idols. So FYI, I'm gonna say this to the whole community of Gentiles. Guys, you can certainly follow Jesus without going through that whole circumcision ritual. We're gonna bypass that, but you cannot keep your idolatry. He would have done fine just to say, you can love Jesus as long as you don't worship false idols. We've got to maintain that point. And then it helps us look at our own lives and say, okay, if I truly am loving Jesus, if I truly am seeking Jesus, if I truly am serving Jesus, then what are the idols in my life that need to come down? Where are the parts of sexual immorality, blood, idols, meat of strangled animals? What are those connection points today? Because it may not be sexual immorality and it may not be blood from meat or meat that was strangled or preserved for some. It may not be those specific things, but there are some things in our life that we cling to in idle fashion because we want to worship Jesus and something else. But the problem with Jesus and anything is that it's Jesus or nothing. Doctrinal unity, what we believe about these words, always preserves gospel authority. And it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Each of those things was inextricably linked to idol worship. So the Gentiles did have to abandon that. They did have to move from that. go on and we encounter conflict, more conflict than just that one that happened in the Jerusalem council. Yeah, there's more conflict along the way. Because in verse 36, if you skip down, we'll go a little further. It says this, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Let's go back and check on them. Let's go back and make sure they're still okay. Let's go back and make sure none of these lies have infiltrated the church. And and so Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. Sometimes we say John Mark because, you know, it's the South. We do double names with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Like, John Mark had already had trouble along the way. He was already a lag in the journey. And so Paul was like, no, we can't take that guy with us. And Barnabas was like, yes, we are going to take that guy with us. And so they had such a, I love this verse, sharp disagreement that they part company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers of the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I love that they had a conflict in that moment, because it just tells me we don't have to be like everybody else. That doctrinal unity may be all about gospel centrality, and it may be all about gospel authority, but it doesn't always mean strategic uniformity. It means we don't have to all look the same. We have to all do the same things. You can have Presbyterians over here and you can have Baptists over here and they still love and serve Jesus in really great ways. We don't have to agree on everything. And lots of times in scripture, we go so straight to the disagreement. We're like, well, see, even that church couldn't get it all together. Even those leaders couldn't do anything but have conflict with one another. But you forget the bookends. 
The start of the conflict was, hey, let's go back and strengthen all the churches. And you know what happened after they had a sharp disagreement and they parted ways? They went around to all the towns strengthening the churches. So while gospel unity, doctrinal unity, does not always mean uniformity, it does mean that we will protect missional superiority. We will stay on mission and stay on course no matter what. You know, just because something feels really important to us, you know, something feels like it's the most important thing to you, doesn't mean that it's the most important thing for you. This conflict, it mattered to Paul and Barnabas so much so that they were willing to split ways. But when they split ways, what did they do? They went about the work of Jesus. I think we can get so caught up in the fact that these guys had a conflict and parted ways that we forget that when they did, they stayed committed to the mission. You learn that what was a big deal to them in this moment, John Mark, no John Mark, that was a big deal to them in this moment, but it wasn't the biggest deal. We're going to have disagreements. We're going to have conflicts. We're going to have things that we don't all see eye to eye on, but at the end of the day, we're going to move past those and focus on the mission. Somebody's going to think that kids' ministry is the most important thing in the life of the church. Somebody else is going to think that worship ministry is the most important thing in the life of the church. And you know, at the end of the day, we're just going to give God all the glory for the things that he's doing in the life of the church. And we're going to know and trust that when we stay committed to that mission, we'll see great things happen. These guys did part ways, but they went right back to doing exactly what they said they were going to do. Let's go to the churches and tell them the good news of the fact that they don't have to all go get circumcised today because they can follow Jesus because of the grace alone that was afforded to them on the cross of Christ. And let's make sure that they are strengthened and encouraged and they're not tempted to move and deviate beyond what we know to be true, which is given to us in Acts chapter 15, that at the end of it all, only your faith in Jesus matters. Maybe you're tempted to move away from that. Maybe it's the season and the circumstance of life that you're in right now. Maybe it's the voices that you're hearing all around you. Maybe it's the, um, the politics and the news media cycle that's going on in the world around you. Maybe it's some sort of pressure that you're experienced even from within to tempt you to move beyond this simple statement that it's faith in God through grace alone that any of us can come to our Father. Whatever those pressures are, be strengthened and encouraged to hold fast to doctrinal unity, letting what you believe work its way out of your life in really good, healthy ways. That's what the church is for. That's what Bible study is for. That's what community groups are for. That's what our age-appropriate ministries are for. That's what our Sunday morning gatherings are for, so that we can come in here as unified believers, trusting in Christ and Christ alone, and be strengthened to go out there and live it when it's hard, when certain people will want to move you off the path that God has for you, you can stay committed to Christ and Christ alone because it's through his grace and his goodness alone that we have been afforded our salvation. That's why this passage is important because Acts chapter 15, if they had gone a different way, it had the potential to undo everything that Jesus had done since the cross. 
It had the potential to undo Acts chapter 2 when the church was founded. It had the potential to undo Acts chapter 9 when Paul was saved. It had the potential to unravel it all. And we are all on the cusp of unraveling. Raise your hand if you don't know that's true. But the decision that was made there by that council to understand that it's grace alone is one that we can still rest firmly in today so much so that when even when we have little disagreements and conflicts and differences, opinions of along the way, we can divert right back to our mission to be strengthened believers who go out there and proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ and strengthen others along the way. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be in this place and to study and to experience your word. And it's a word that we declare and proclaim to be true today. And so my prayer is for any of these brothers and sisters of mine who are in this room, who feel weak, may they be strengthened. Who feel tempted to turn away, may they be strengthened. Who feel pressured to move in another direction, may they be strengthened so that they can be a people who who leave this place stronger than the way that they entered this place and a people who are ready to communicate your grace every single step of the way everywhere we go. Oh, Father, thank you for the gift of grace alone. God, we ask that we would be a people who sustain our belief in that because it's not us. We didn't do it. We didn't sustain it. We didn't create it. You did. And what we want to do is commit ourselves to it and then proclaim it so that others can experience it too. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray today. Amen.